Hello all, welcome to the Lunar Sea Spire Cartoon Fan Podcast. This is episode 467, and today we'll be talking about A Love's Last Light, from Unicorn Warriors Eternal. I'm GC13. And I'm David. So, I mean, when they set up apocalyptic end-of-existence uh, scenarios, I think they do an alright job, what do you think? <laughs> they They certainly brought the stakes as far as they possibly could, which... I guess that was always the point of the evil. Control of time itself. Yeah, uh, truly the existential threat. Well, I don't see how you can call the evil all that bad. I mean, we got to see adult battle hunk Alfie out of the deal. Come on. He's got a pet lion that he can ride into battle. Yeah. Who doesn't love that? No, Sang definitely won out here. Nearly no one else does. But, sure. I don't know. Winston's doing all right. They also only show the evil as pretty much just cutesy the whole time. I didn't get that. <laughs> Why is the evil very mild-looking amorphous blob people slash hands slash just a cutesy face drawn in the clouds? I didn't even notice a face. As for the the walkers, I think they're just... I don't know if they're minions or if they're like aspects. I don't know what they are. As with so many things, there's very little elaboration. Yeah, I think that, you know, not to focus on like the negative first, but I think my biggest disappointment with this part one of the finale is in the cosmic realm, we explore very little. There are walkers. Other than that, there are floating rocks and there is nothing else. I mean, we just hide out in a rock asteroid for most of the episode. And I do think the conversations that happen there are good, but... At least they established that this is what the cosmic realm is like. Of course, they established it as being much more vibrant, much more full of life in the past. The evil has definitely done a number on the place in the past (laughs) 20 years. Right, it's done a number, but as I was watching with my partner, she said, Wait, is it different? (laughs) Like, we don't, you know, we haven't seen enough of the cosmic realm when, you know, Merlin exclaims, Odin's eye! (laughs) You're looking out and you're like, oh, I don't know, did it change color? (laughs) Like, you know, there's like, they see a phoenix fly by and we're like, is that a good phoenix? A bad phoenix? I I literally don't know. Seemed to be an upset phoenix to me. Right. But, yeah, I don't know. They're all so shocked, but to me, the visual didn't line up that much. I mean, like, a bird was disturbed. Was it in pain? Was it alone? I don't, I don't know. But that's okay, because, uh, well, we got the really awesome, (laughs) well, it wasn't quite a chess game, but the game, the game of playing out the future between Merlin and Rakshasa, that was that was a fun little scene. <laughs> I, I did like seeing them just stare at, you know, some kind of miniature cosmic plane for a while. Part of me wishes that the what they'd been doing, had, there had been a little bit more visually to it to indicate what they were doing. But in the end, I think it's best that it be left utterly inscrutable to the audience. Melinda certainly seems to to figure <laughs> out what's going on, but as far as the audience is concerned, these guys have senses far beyond our own, so they're just doing their thing. Right, they they definitely push the angle that things are going on well beyond our understanding, right? And 
Merlin and the Rakshasa seem to have some understanding of where this fits in, right? Like, we were trying to understand what the evil's purpose is. And we do get some pretty lucid statements about the evil, including that it just, it, it wants power for itself, and it wants to control space and time. And, you know, Merlin is very sensitive to space and time. Time seems to be a big thing for him, you know, since he can seemingly form portals between it regularly, which is kind of interesting, too. Merlin doesn't control time, but he he's certainly, like, the only character, I think, that I've seen seamlessly navigate it. Yeah, it's much harder when Seng does it. Uh, Merlin does it with ease. Right. Seng's kind of at the mercy of the universe. Well, and Seng only does it within the cosmic realm? Just seen into the future, right? Does he actually travel between it? I think he was there. Because the... Well, remember, when he was back in the time of the dinosaurs, he was in danger. Okay, right. Those those are actually portals in the Sea of Time to specific points. Yeah. But yeah, Merlin, far more advanced, can just call up a portal to wherever he wants, whereas Sang has to hope that the universe has his back that day, which, thankfully, it did when he needed it. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness he found this tiger and kept it, you know, safe, and also found a giant water bowl for it. That's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> where did he get the water for that? Is this like a realm where you have the power to turn thoughts into reality? Uh, they've never implied that. There's several mechanisms that are strange because, you know, he's here for 20 years. First of all, I don't know how he measured that because there is no <laughs> clocks anywhere. There's no calendars. There's no sun or moon. So I don't understand where he's getting his sense of time. And I don't know, uh, you know, classically, where does he go to the bathroom? What does he eat? Uh, I'm thinking it's all just magic and they're fine. Yep. Don't got to explain anything. <laughs> no. But yeah, well, it's, but they did explain something finally, which is they really dug into the nature of what Emma and Melinda have become. And she's finally enunciating it at this point. She's just saying what, you know, you would have figured all along. It's what we've experienced since episode one. She is someone else. Right, like, clearly this was a new emergent person. Now what's fascinating is what the final episode kind of, like, we'll, we'll, we'll understand even more how this has affected individually Emma and Melinda. But uh, I, I like these conversations. I'm also, ooh, it's spicy. What do you think? Melinda slash Emma is given... Uh, <laughs> belly rubs to a certain werewolf, right? Seems like Edred might have some real legitimate reasons to feel bummed out because he seems to have completely lost the interest of Melinda Emma, except for the fact that she does wistfully look at him at least once. It's tough when you're a girl with memories of two boyfriends. <laughs> right. It's almost like, though, is that really any different <laughs> than normal life? I don't know. But they're two discrete identities that have just combined. They're magical, immortal beings, yeah, who have combined two separate lives together into one being. Who, uh, well, uh, she was one being for a little while until she got a little bit too big for her britches and started going after the big bad directly. And the big bad's like, well, can't have any of this. <laughs> yep, she gets ripped apart right at the end and really sneakily uh, i mean they're they're doing a lot of legwork here as we see them split apart they also fade in 
You can just barely see Copernicus absorbing Melinda's soul, which is very convenient for the next episode. But like, I, I truly mm-hmm. didn't see that until the like third time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I this time when I watched, I did catch the beam coming out. But yeah, that's that's the only like Copernicus quick on the draw with that. I, I I'm almost like did they just throw that in last second just as another layer, just so that they could justify it. I don't know, but uh, it is weird. I mean, they don't have to show us anything. Right. Like, we could just assume that he got it. So I I can only imagine that it's there because they wanted it, not because they felt like they needed it. Right. But it just happens so quickly. Like, it's interesting that they chose to do it with overlaid layers instead of just discrete scenes. Like, see her flying apart, see Copernicus shoot out a beam real quick. I mean, we don't even have to see the beam hit Melinda, right? In fact, now that I've said that out loud, of course, I'm playing writer, which is just wrong. But it's like, oh, you know, a stupid tension you could have done was <laughs> whether or not it was, you know, Melinda or Emma that he saved. But I believe, well, yeah, we just end on a just general cliffhanger here. That would make the end of the episode even more interesting if they did the the video. So you're not sure is like, oh, is this what it's like inside of Copernicus? Ooh. I mean, let's just say her mother is very, when she gets a feeling, she gets a feeling. Yeah. She'll be back soon. I just know it. Bam! <laughs> right through the piano. Yeah, that was an amazing scene. Uh, <laughs> I actually just watched the finale again, so I couldn't remember if they placed that before or after. So the cliffhanger here is just that she needs to get back. Back to the past. I mean, back to the cosmic realm. <laughs> that that does seem to be a theme, doesn't it? <laughs> With Gendy. Gotta get back to Galaluna. Gotta get back to the past. Yep. Nobody's happy where they are. <laughs> it's just a classic tension. Makes for good storytelling. But yeah, I'm glad that consistently Emma's parents do grieve her. But uh, I, I feel like they should have taken into account the fact that she came through the roof a little more. Um, yeah, that should have, that might have come up. It, you know, it's like, daughter, did you just break through the, the roof, the the ceiling and my piano and then get up and be like, yeah, I'm not hurt. Like, maybe that should be a concern to you. It's interesting, though, because even in this brief moment, it really seems like Emma just is the exact same person that she was as Emma Melinda. So I wonder how much Melinda is just that being now, too. Or if we have really permanently transformed who Emma is in some way. Like, is Emma the embodiment? Yeah, it it is hard to understand. Because Emma's body was uh, what Melinda was using to to do her stuff this whole time. But at the same time, I feel like Emma was contributing more to that mm-hmm. than just being, you know, the angel on her shoulder. Because she immediately thinks, no, I have to go and do something. Like, there's no, oh, Melinda needs my body. It's just like, no, I have to go do something. Yeah, I think from an early point, Emma was the dominant personality and almost like it was just melinda's influence and occasionally melinda came up as her powers were used yeah the human torch but otherwise yeah i mean i think emma might actually be the emma melinda (laughs) and melinda might just be melinda with these memories but i think that one person did discreetly change which 
you know, this is kind of fun. I didn't realize we'd be watching a show about fusion again. It took me until episode nine to realize we're just dealing with fusion. But here we are. See, they tricked you because they didn't dance first. It's so confusing. But you know what? This lore would have totally made sense in Steven Universe, too, if there was just a third-party robot <laughs> transferring souls. But uh, not as artistically impactful. I think I think thematically mm. it made more sense to do a little jiggy in, in Steven Universe. <laughs> Plus some amazing songs. I do think Copernicus and Melinda would make great gems. <laughs> Copernicus. I'm just, like, hearing the... Um, the original song, I can't remember what it was, between Amethyst and Pearl, uh, Amalgam. It's like that song, but with Copernicus somehow <laughs> trying to dance in the toots. You know, it, it doesn't work out. I would love to see somebody animate that, though. <laughs> what we, we've, we've gone all this time, and we haven't talked about the, the part before the cosmic realm. Right. Where the, the evil takes the mask off, and I swear... The the voice it's using for Merlin sounded so much like the old pirate guy from uh, the episode on the ship where, he, where he's just growling. And I, I just think back to when Sang was picking up the saber. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, corrupted Merlin is pretty cool. Has some very scary looking teeth and puts up a pretty big fight. The nails are pretty horrifying, too. Ooh, yeah, they really emphasize his gnarled hands more. I don't understand, though. We've seen Merlin with the cosmic eyes before. So it's interesting that the evil just opportunistically finally got there through Sang instead. But perhaps it's because Sang is always in the cosmic realm. If Merlin wasn't actively viewing it, then, uh, you know, it can't use it as a portal. Yeah, Sang's eyes are always open to the cosmic realm, whereas Merlin only does that in very specific circumstances. So, you know, saying it's just a ready-made portal, whereas Merlin, I'm sure he could have used Merlin's magic to get in there, but maybe the evil doesn't have access to Merlin's full suite of powers. It's It becomes limited somehow. Mm -hmm. It clearly doesn't have access to its full memories, otherwise it would have been like, it would have known who Emma was, for one. Right. Yeah, but it's interesting because it, it did have access to something. or it, it It's interesting that it can actually speak through Merlin, right? It gives it a real personhood, right? And seeing its emotional reaction to, you know, being attacked and whatever, it, it gives a different sense than when we just see them attacking, you know, a big spirit monster. Yeah, especially when there are like 20 of them. Kind of makes it less special. Although it does make the fight much more intense. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if it will come up thematically, but, you know, this is just an example of both sides are using body control. And it's funny because the good guys really used it the same way, you know, just like non-consensual, full control, but I'll leave you alone later. And the evil, you know, uses Merlin's body the same way. I don't know if that's just because... It's all Merlin's family's magic, right? You know, his wife and him, they, they just have this ability to set it up. I'm not sure why Merlin, I don't know how he ever got Copernicus built. I don't know if Otto in some weird future where he's resurrected, you know, contributed to that technology or not. Maybe magic just is technology in this world. I don't know. 
But uh, I don't know if it's like an intentional narrative choice or not that the body stuff happens for both the good and evil. Because they're not different, <laughs> per se. Well, there's a level of destiny to what the what the warriors are doing. Like, Copernicus isn't just, oh, I'm going to go find somebody who looks right. It's like, no, I know where the person is. We have to go get him. Although it is curious that all three of them happen to be in and around London. Uh, that's quite convenient, don't you think? Uh, you know, lots convenient with Copernicus. I mean, where is he really getting his direction from? Why doesn't even Merlin understand the choices he made? And what the heck? The dude, even though we can't understand him, is completely understood by all the teammates. So if they're willing to talk, I mean, these characters directly talk about how they lore function, right? <laughs> On the train, they talked about their eternalness. In this episode, Melinda talked about her own nature. Uh, why can they not just ask Copernicus more explicitly, hey, buddy, don't just toot at me with general toots, specifically toot me why you picked us. <laughs> why did you go after some child on a random island of misfits? Why did you pick this girl, Emma? I mean, now clearly Emma is proving herself to have been her own character just waiting <laughs> to have this opportunity to save the universe. But I, I just, it'd be nice, you know, they can clearly talk to him. So just talk to him. I, I think there's a precedent for this kind of character in fiction where they, they understand a lot. And uh, in Copernicus's case, he can even, he, he can only say so much. It's like if you have a, if you have a dog, in a TV show. It's very usual. You're going to be able to tell that dog some very abstract things like, <laughs> hey man, go get the newspaper that that guy had back there and then the dog will go grab the newspaper. Or maybe if it's going to be funny, he'll like go grab the the soda can that the dude had next to the newspaper. It's like, no, the newspaper, you dummy. It's like, you do realize that that dog just followed some pretty abstract instructions, right? That's pretty impressive. So there's just a limit to it. Copernicus can only think so hard. <laughs> He so he just needs to be encouraged with Scooby snacks, is what you're telling me. Ooh, this would be a great crossover: Scooby Doo and the Unicorn Warriors Eternal. <laughs> I feel like the the magic that exists could align with that universe, but I think they'd be a little bit out of their element. Uh, the mystery gang with eh. with the mystery of the entire universe is going to be controlled by an abstract evil entity. And also, whoa, Merlin is really old and scary. <laughs> We're just going to be focused on staring at him the whole time. Eh, I don't know. Shaggy and Scooby will do a lot for a Scooby snack. <laughs> I'm just saying, when the chips are down, you can count on their stomachs to be empty. I, I, uh... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, guys, that's it for us on A Love's Last Light. Join us next week. Until then, I'm GC13. And I'm David. Leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. Later, everybody. Our opening and closing music is by Mark Soto. For more cartoon-related content, please visit LunarCeasefire.com. 